Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. Journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. Journal. Just click the red Journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. cultural and political differences between the United States and our neighbor to the north in Canada. But many have observed that where Canada is now, the United States is definitely headed in that direction. So it's relevant to look at where Canada is now on a couple issues. First of all, their fertility rate, that spells a lot of future plans and sets in place a lot of inevitabilities for a large free country, and religious participation. Are the two related, fertility and religious participation? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about religion and Canadian fertility rates, Lyman Stone. He's a Ph.D. candidate in population dynamics at McGill University, director of research for demographic intelligence. He's adjunct fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, research fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, and he's authored a new study titled Religion and Fertility in Canada. Lyman, welcome back. It's always good to be with you all. What does the fertility rate look like in Canada overall? It's pretty low. Canadian women right now, on average, can expect to have approximately 1.4 children if birth rates remain stable over the course of their life. You know, in reality, they may end up having a little bit more as they kind of catch up on currently low rates. But it is low. It's lower than the U.S. The U.S. is around 1.6. So it's, it's a pretty low fertility society up here in Montreal. So how do we know why religious people tend to have more children worldwide? Why is that? In almost every society, religious people do have bigger families, more children. There's great debate on why that is. There's different theories. Maybe it's because they get more support from their communities. Maybe it's because they, uh, you know, have a more traditional values that make them hesitant to, you know, modern ideas or something. Um, but what we find in Canada, and they're actually replicated in lots of places around the world, is that religious people tend to want bigger families. Now, in some ways that kind of just pushes the question one step further, you know, okay, so why do religious people want one bigger families? But I actually think this is, you know, an important starting point. Why do religious people have more kids? It's because they want more kids. It's not that they have the same desires as other people, but they fulfill their desires at a higher rate or something. No, religious people have more kids because they want more kids. It's not that religious women are trapped in the kitchen and not getting a job or not getting educated or something like that. It's simply that, that religious people tend to want more kids, and so they have more kids. So what does religious participation look like in Canada? It's very low. Exact estimates are going to vary, but in the U.S., on an average Sunday, you know, you could see anywhere from 15 to 35 percent of people in some kind of religious congregation somewhere. Whereas in Canada, you know, it's maybe 5 to 15%. It's maybe 
a third as much. So it's much lower religious participation in general in Canada than in the U.S. In your study, how do you define religious? Well, we have two different approaches to this. And, and really what's going on here is that Canada is a very religiously diverse country, largely thanks to high rates of immigration. And we oversampled immigrants in our study because we were really interested in this question of religious diversity. So we have pretty good sample sizes, you know, of like Buddhists, Sikhs, uh, Jews, Muslims, of course, Protestants, Catholics, different Christian groups. And so one way we, we operationalize religion is just by looking at, you know, what tradition people are affiliated with or, or what their religious identity is. And then also within that, you know, we don't just say no religion. We break it down into, we break down sort of the, the quote unquote non-religious groups into three different groups, which is spiritual, but not religious, no particular religion, and then atheist or agnostic. The upshot of all of this is that we have a lot of variety in how people religiously identify. And then separately, we also ask about frequency of religious attendance. That measure, you know, it's, there's debate about it as a, as a measure. Overall, we find it, it is pretty predictive of people who are really enmeshed in a religious community that they might derive social support from and significant meaning from. There are exceptions to that, particularly if you were to like look at Shintoism in Japan, there's a lot of Japanese people who have a really strong identification with Shintoism, but not a lot of attendance because it's just not part of the religious norm. But in general, for most groups, the more often that you are going to a religious site, the likelier it is that you are strongly connected to and influenced by the norms and practices of that religion. Do we know how religion influences marriage and family? Scholars debate this, but what we pointed to in our study is that the more frequently women, and we, we surveyed women because we were asking about fertility and men's fertility rates are not very accurately reported because a lot of men don't acknowledge paternity of some of their children. And so their, their responses are, are not as accurate as women, whereas women tend to remember how many kids they have. <laughs> what we show is that for, for women, the more often they attend church, the likelier they are to be married. And that's true at all ages. So more religious women are likelier to be married at every age. They get married younger. They stay married longer. This has a considerable effect. Being married is one of the strongest predictors of having kids. Yes, unmarried parenthood is a thing. There are children born out of wedlock. But your odds of having a child in a given year when you're married are you know, an order of magnitude higher than your odds of having a child in a given year when you are unmarried. And so the simple fact that religious women get married earlier and stay married longer explains a lot of the fertility differential between them and less religious women. Now, this gets to a chicken and the egg, right? Is it that religion made them get married younger? Or is it that wanting to have children made them get married younger? Or did religion cause them to want to have children and to get married younger? We can't sort out all of the causal arrows here, but what we can say, I think... And what I think is a reasonable way of thinking about this is basically that religion tends to connect people into more family-oriented social circles, and it tends to connect people to partners who are more family-oriented, who share those values, and then that makes it easier to match at a younger age, and then you're also married to someone who might share your larger family desires. So these things all really kind of are a bundle of religious socialization and religious values. These things really go together. And I think trying to separate which one is at work causally 
might actually be a mistake because it's very rare that somebody would be, you know, exposed to social support of religion, but not ideology of religion, right? These things go together. They're the same thing in some sense. How did you conduct this study? So this was an online survey. It was funded by CARDIS, which is a Canadian think tank that works on the intersection of kind of the public sector and communities of, of faith and value in Canada. Obviously, that's predominantly Judeo-Christian organizations, predominantly Christian ones. But, you know, we, we have an interest in making sure that faith-based organizations for any faith, you know, have basic religious liberties in Canada. And uh, uh, and so we ran the survey. We surveyed 2,700 people. We made sure that we had big samples of English speakers, uh, English-speaking Canadians, French-speaking Canadians, um, and uh, immigrants to Canada. It was women 18 to 44. So women, you know, reproductive age women is the term of art. Um, and when we say uh, women, for our purposes, that meant individuals who at birth were recognized as biologically female. Uh, we do have a few respondents who no longer identified as women, but because they were born potentially with the capacity to bear children, they were in our in our sample. And of course, for for my purposes, I would I would recognize that person as a woman. So it is biological natal females in our sample. So how did the religious categories and participation break down in your study? Who actually was participating according to religious affiliation? Well, we got a lot of non-religious people in our sample. And in fact, Canada's census asks about religion. And the results of it became available after we ran the survey. And what we've discovered since is that we undersampled certain groups, particularly some uh, Christians, Protestants, and a few other groups. And we really oversampled non-religious Canadians. So we we got way too many non-religious respondents in our sample, which is kind of unfortunate. But it doesn't dramatically influence our results because we're segmenting by religion anyways. So I think almost half of our respondents or something were were non-religious and you know 60% rarely or never attended church I think might even have been higher than that but for our purposes that isn't a huge problem because we're comparing across religious groups anyway um what we did control for you know we wanted to make sure that our respondents were representative of Canadians in terms of age income region family status, things like that. So on that, we did control for those sorts of things to make sure that it, they represented the Canadian population. How did you measure religious attendance? Uh, we just asked people frequency ranging from never or almost never up to, you know, more than weekly. And then we ultimately grouped this into three groups you could kind of call never attending, irregularly attending, and regularly attending. So regularly attending uh, monthly or more. So people are coming at least monthly. Never, of course, is people who never, almost never attend. And then irregular is all the people in between, you know, Christmas and Easter or, you know, four times a year, things like that. And so uh, regular church attenders are not a huge share of Canada's population these days. And so those are the big groups that we use for comparing religiosity, not so much religion, but religiosity. What are uh, fertility desires and fertility intentions and what did you find regarding the two so in our survey we we wanted to look at a couple of different things you know we asked women how many kids they had but we also wanted to know their actual values towards having kids so we had one question where we basically asked something like in your ideal world how many children would would you like to have or would you have liked to have for older women and then we also asked okay how many children do you actually intend to have like in your actual real life 
And people don't give the same responses to these questions. In fact, intentions are almost always lower than ideals. There are a few people who intend more than is their ideal, but that's rare. So intentions are generally lower than ideals. Um, and what we find is that the only groups who intend to have two or more children are the Abrahamic religions, right? So Protestants, Catholics, Jews, Muslims. So when we look at like non-religious people in Canada, they intend to have fewer than two children. And if we look at East Asian religions or South Asian religions, they also intend to have less than two children. So this was pretty striking that in Canada, the only people who actually intend to have two or more children, so something like replacement rate, fertility, are members of Abrahamic faiths, and in particular Protestants. Protestants had uh, the highest fertility desires and intentions. So I think that was surprising to a lot of people. You know, we don't always associate Asian religions with low fertility, although there's prior research to suggest that even in East Asia, Buddhists have lower fertility than, than other groups. But beyond this, I think it was surprising to a lot of people that Catholics in Canada have lower fertility preferences than Protestants. I think that was very surprising to a lot of people who've read the report that Protestants are, are really the only group with really kind of what we'd still call you know, high fertility preferences in Canada. Now, that doesn't mean they'll actually have that many children, but it means that they still have this, this norm, this value set of two, maybe three kids per family. Lyman Stone is our guest. Religion and Canadian fertility rates is our topic. I'm Todd Wilkin. You're linked to Issues Etc. Folks, if you or someone you know will be attending the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's convention, be sure to check out the Christ-centered, high-quality products offered by Ad Crusom. Their booth is number 222, 222, or visit them on the web at adcrusom.com, A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. On the other side, why do we need to differentiate between religious attendance as opposed to religious self-identification? Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. journal. Just click the red journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. Does this sound like your church budget process at the end of the year? You get last year's budget and go through with a committee line by line, maybe what we should spend next year. Maybe you have a prayer. But where's the word of God in this process? When do the people hear what the small catechism says about giving and why we do it? Contact us at LCMS Stewardship so that we can help you fix this process, put the Word of God first, and put your congregation on a good fitting. lcms.org stewardship. Lutheranism in the public square. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. 
Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Are you a young, single, confessional Lutheran looking for a future spouse or friends who share your faithful confession of Christ? St. John Lutheran Church in Sycamore, Illinois, is hosting its second annual Singles Retreat on Saturday, August 5th. This retreat is for high school grads through age 30. Visit stjohnsycamore.org and select the Young Singles Retreat icon. That's stjohnsycamore.org. Talking about religion and Canadian fertility rates, Lyman Stone, Director of Research for Demographic Intelligence, is our guest. Lyman, why is religious attendance key as opposed to mere religious self-identification? Well, you know, I think it's one thing to say, oh yeah, I'm Catholic, or oh, I'm Lutheran. That might tell me something about your orientation in life. But then again, it might not. It might be that what you mean is, you know, when you were a kid, you were baptized that or your parents raised you that, but it doesn't really mean anything to you now. Religious attendance is a decent measure, not a perfect measure, but a decent measure of whether your religious identity actually means something to your daily practice and your social life and the kind of community you surround yourself with. So one of the things that we show is that actually fertility preferences tend to rise with frequency of religious attendance. So the more frequently you attend attend a religious service, the bigger family you tend to want to have, but that the slope is not the same for all groups. So like Catholics, Protestants, and Jews, the more you attend religious services, the more kids you want, and the difference is, is quite big. It's a pretty steep line that the more devout you are in those groups, the more babies you want to have. But for like Buddhists and Sikhs and Hindus, the line is a lot flatter. Religious attendance is not as determinative for those groups. But strikingly, what we find is for every group, if you if you rarely or never attend church, for every group, they all pretty much have the same fertility desires around 1.8 kids. I forget if this graph was using, inten- I think it was using intentions to measure this. So intentions about 1.8 kids. So whatever you say you are, if it's not a practice in your life, it has no impact on your family structure, your family formation, your intentions to have kids. But as you become more devout within your tradition, the traditions differentiate. So the more devout you are in the tradition, the more you tend to differentiate from other groups. And that's not terribly surprising, I think. But it was neat to be able to demonstrate it that really, you know, nominal adherence doesn't really do anything for distinctive family models. Distinctive family models emerge from more intense community level commitments, right? You don't just say you're something, you're actually part of a community that supports you in that. In the data that you were gathering, did uh, family formation only involve biological children? So this was one of the most fascinating things we looked at. So, you know, mostly we asked about biological children, because, you know, we're interested in kind of society-wide fertility and all children ultimately are a birth, biological birth to someone somewhere. But 
We also wanted to know about a broader definition of family, right? Adoptive children, foster children. We also, you know, we wanted to know about use of reproductive technology, right? IVF, surrogacy, these kinds of things. And things that, you know, often, you know, I think many of us would have ethical concerns about, right? I don't necessarily want to encourage these things, and some of them I very much want to discourage. But we just wanted to know what the prevalence of these different pathways to acquiring children uh, look like. And what we found is that, interestingly, not only do religious people have more natural births, right? So basically, you know, no use of reproductive technology, just man, woman, the old-fashioned way, but also more religious people acquire more children through other means as well. They adopt more, they foster more, those ones, I think many of us are like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. You know, it might be a consistent life ethic, or it might be, you know, just generally greater openness to children, maybe infertile religious people, maybe they, they want to adopt or things like that. But then also they acquire more stepchildren, which implies, you know, that divorce and remarriage is, is fairly prevalent among a lot of religious groups, which I think isn't surprising, but also a lot of religious, many of us don't love the idea of uh, high divorce rates in our communities. Or, you know, you know, we also find that religious people are more likely to report children from, you know, donor genetic material, either donor sperm or donor eggs. These are basically, you know, IUI or IVF, different reproductive technologies. They also had higher rates of use of surrogacy. Again, a lot of these things are things that many of us would have ethical concerns about, but they're actually quite common among religious populations in Canada, at least. And I suspect they are in the U.S. as well, if sometimes maybe not discussed. And what we think is going on here is that very simply, religious people really do tend to want kids. And also having kids tends to make people become more religious. And, you know, I could talk about that all day, but basically when people have kids, it tends to stimulate in them a desire for more transcendent community of values. And so what's happening is religious people are self-selected into people who really, really want kids. And also once you have kids, you tend to select into religiosity regardless of how you had them. And as a result, even though a lot of religious communities might have, I think, legitimate concerns about some of these methods of acquiring children in your life, still these things are quite prevalent among religious people because there is still a powerful nexus between family and faith. The reality is that, and in fact, this is becoming more so that the difference in fertility rates between religious people and non-religious people in the U.S. is actually growing over time. Faith is becoming more correlated with fertility in the U.S., not less. I'm sure it's the same in Canada, but the result of this is essentially that our churches are increasingly Increasingly, the, the culture of them is going to be set by the fact that the only people in our society who want to go to church are people with deep family ties. And there's lots of reasons for that, but that's increasingly where our culture is headed. And that just means there's a lot of people in our churches who have children through a variety of different channels. You ask the question, how exactly does religion affect fertility and family formation? Is there a, an answer for that, a simple answer for that? You know, I don't think there's a simple answer, but one of the really fascinating things that we found, and I might be jumping the gun on this question here, but I just thought it was really interesting, is we also asked tons of these questions about worries people have. I forget the exact wording, but something like when you think about having more children in your family um, or having children in your family, if people hadn't already had kids, you know, which of these things, you know, concerns you have? And we offer things like 
home prices or, you know, I live too far away from my family or I'm still in school or whatever. And what we found is on every single one of these worries, except I think there was one small one that this wasn't true, but on almost every single one of these worries, religious women had far lower odds of reporting a given worry than less religious women. So the more often you attended church, the less worried you were about everything. And I mean everything. You know, some of these things are like, oh yeah, they're less worried about global warming because maybe women who attend church are just more conservative to begin with and more skeptical of, you know, anthropogenic global warming claims. Okay, maybe. But then you get something like, why would religious women just report less worry about like insufficient finances or childcare costs? So then you say, oh, well, maybe they're richer. But the great thing about the financial ones we asked about is we also asked a bunch of questions about household finances. We asked if household finances had recently gotten better or worse. We asked subjectively, like, you know, how do you feel you're doing, getting along well, doing okay, you know, don't have enough to make ends meet. And then we also just asked about income and education level. And even if you control for all of these things, religious women and non-religious women who report the exact same kinds of financial circumstances still have dramatically different levels of financial worry as it relates to family. Which is to say, we think one of the main things that's actually happening with religion is that, yes, it makes people want and intend to have more children. And one of the reasons it does that is because it makes people feel less worried about the impact that children will have on their life. And probably the way it does that is that you have more role models around you of bigger families. You have more people around you who you think might help you with your kids. And also you have an ideology, you know, your, your religious faith that's giving you an idea that having kids is meaningful and rewarding and fun. And, you know, maybe, yeah, you won't have time to do this other thing anymore, but, but having kids will be good for these other reasons. And so as you're thinking about having kids, everybody has worries. And so religion tends to be a vehicle through which a lot of these worries are allayed because you're in a community that might help you. You're with a spouse who probably supports this. You have, you know, a set of rhetorical frameworks and and ideas and values. And I'm saying this all in very sociological terms, but basically what I'm saying is like, you have a church that supports you, a pastor that encourages you, and a belief system that tells you how good and excellent and wonderful it is to have children because it is. They are a blessing and a heritage from the Lord these things matter. (laughs) Like when you're surrounded in that kind of community, it actually alleviates worries that people have and empowers them to embark on the kind of family life that they desire for themselves. We're talking about religious participation and Canadian fertility rates with Lyman Stone, Director of Research for Demographic Intelligence. Up next, how are fertility and religious participation related there in Canada? Education and edification. You're listening to Issues Etc. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue our adventures in Acts with repentance that leads to life. First called Christians, martyrdom of James, Peter rescued, and when you pray but don't expect an answer. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Wildwood, Missouri is a proud sponsor of Issues Etc. And if you enjoy the relevant, Christ-centered teachings presented on this program, 
then you should come and join us at St. Paul's on Sundays at 9 a.m., where you will hear sermons that proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our sins, and enjoy in-depth Bible studies to help us grow as disciples. For more information, check us out at stpaullutheranwildwood.org. You can watch a video stream or download audio recordings of the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We'll send you a link and a password for a contribution of $300 by Labor Day. The recordings contain all of the conference presentations, worship services, and the hymn sing. Place your order at issuesetc.org or give us a call, 618-223-8385. We're talking about religion and Canadian fertility rates with Lyman Stone. In about 10 minutes, we'll continue our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor. Lyman, in summary, how are fertility and religious participation related in Canada? Religion is a kind of both community support and psycho-emotional buffer that protects people from some of the cares and worries of life. This isn't groundbreaking news. Many people have speculated this. We provide what I think is some decent empirical evidence of a specific case of this. And the upshot of it is that religious faith leaves people better off in their family life. It leaves people empowered to have the families that they want. It leaves people having more of the children that they want. You know, they still, a lot of them have missing kids. That is kids they'd like to have and didn't get to because they want more children to begin with. But they feel empowered even to want those kids because as they look at the world, it's not as scary. Nonetheless, you know, we all live in the same world, so there's still difficulties and challenges. Religious people don't have all the children they want to have. They still have shortfalls. They still have difficulties in life and challenges that can't just be wished away or something like that. But still, our religious faith is a powerful influence on fertility in Canada. This research was on Canada because we're the Canadian think tank, but it's pretty relevant for the U.S. too. Our, our societies are not that different. What does the future of Canadian fertility look like if things continue as they are? Canada's fertility will continue to fall. It's not likely to stage a major rebound in the near future, especially if you believe our findings that religion is a major factor shaping fertility. Canada is not getting more religious. And most of the religious growth that is happening in Canada is happening in the growth of some of these lower fertility religions, Sikhism, Hinduism, some of these groups. So increasing those groups is not going to lead to more fertility. They have, they have lower fertility than a lot of native Canadians. And while I would love to say that there's you know, going to be a high fertility future in Canada because lots of Canadians are converting to Lutheranism. I mean, there are some. Our, our church in, in Montreal is, has a pretty steady stream of, of baptisms, which is wonderful to see God work that way. The reality is, statistically speaking, that is not the norm in most of Canada. <laughs> Canada is not a place where across the whole society we are seeing widespread religious revival. Instead, we are seeing a serious retrenchment of religion as a real culture of despair and pessimism uh, kind of sweeps Canada. And you can see this not just in fertility, but in their attitudes and politics towards euthanasia, right? Or even abortion. Uh, they have far more liberal abortion laws even than we do. This is not going to change in the near future. And so Canada's fertility is going to continue to fall, which means for its population growth to continue, Canada will have to get higher and higher migration, which, you know, in, in principle, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's going to 
meaning that Canada is going to have an even harder and harder time cultivating a coherent Canadian civic identity and finding ways for everybody to get along in a society where a lot of these people didn't get along in their home countries and they might not get along in Canada. You mentioned that the U.S. is really far more religious, at least in self-identification, than Canada is. But what can non-Canadian Christians learn from your most recent research? In similar surveys in the U.S., we find very similar things. Religious people want more kids. They intend more kids. They have more kids. They're likelier to be married. They stay married more. Religion is a, a powerful shaper of our family lives. And I think we can take some encouragement in that. That is that we aren't just talking empty talk. Our churches, our communities, when we talk about the value of children, the importance of marriage, on average, we actually are living different lives than our secular neighbors. Now, we are still sinners. We are, we are not perfect. I'm not saying that like, oh, we've got everything figured out. But it can sometimes be encouraging just to be able to look around at our own community and say, you know what? Things aren't perfect, but we actually are created a little bit different of a society. And I can tell you, you know, I run surveys, I run surveys specifically of LCMS members as well. And across about 2,300 LCMS members I've surveyed in the last few years, LCMS women under 50 today in America are having considerable than average Americans. That wasn't true for LCMS women in their 50s and 60s today. LCMS women in their 50s and 60s today had about the same number of children as their age. Under 50 today are, are having considerably more children than their mainstream American peers, and certainly more than their non-religious neighbors. LCMS women of, and again, we survey women because they're report more accurately, but LCMS women of all ages are likelier to be married and to stay married than mainstream Americans, and particularly than non-religious Americans. So we can talk about religious people, right? But many of these religions are false religions. I live in a neighborhood where half the population is Sikh, Hindu, or Muslim. These are false religions. <laughs> saying, oh, religious people are like such and such. Well, we're very different from a lot of these groups, specifically in our own community, though, in the LCMS, um, you know, particularly in younger generations, we are cultivating a different kind of life than mainstream American peers. It actually is happening. And so I think that we can take some encouragement in that, that the labor of creating a different society is not spent vainly, but it is at least conditionally somewhat successful. That might not be a ringing endorsement, but look, it's pretty good. You know, it doesn't get much better than that in terms of things we can say about the world just from numbers. Lyman Stone is a PhD candidate in population dynamics at McGill University. He's director of research for demographic intelligence, adjunct fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a research fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, and author of a new study titled Religion and Fertility in Canada. You can read it at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Lyman, thanks. Thank you. We are back to some questions from kids about the afterlife, heaven, the resurrection, the new earth in our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor next.
So that whole Old Testament, then even the New Testament, can be seen as like, where is this promised child? Dr. Adam Filipic, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for July, Life in Christ, Rooted, Woven, and Grafted into God's Story. Who's going to crush the head of the serpent and give us back the very presence of God, that land that we dwelt with God in, no sorrow, no suffering, no sin, no death, but in his presence permanently. Learn more about Life in Christ at issuesetc.org. When you hear the word heresy, what do you think of? Do you think of some ancient debate the church has gotten over and forgotten? Do you think of some stubby old theologians just arguing over things that don't matter? There's a lot more to heresies than you might think. And that's what the August issue of The Lutheran Witness is all about. Heresies, ancient and modern. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website, witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Where doctrine is life. You're listening to Issues Etc. Are you living in central Iowa and longing for a church where the gospel is boldly confessed in all of its purity? Are you tired of hearing the latest purpose-driven how-to-live-your-best-life-now TED Talk? Are you desperate to hear the preaching of the cross which brings you and your children the knowledge, peace, and comfort of the gospel? Then come to Holy Cross Lutheran Church. Located in Carlisle, Iowa at the southeast corner of Des Moines, we're a short ride from everywhere in the city. Visit our website, holycrosscarlisle.org.